All right, go ahead and grab a seat. Hey, my name is Caleb. If we haven't met before, I would love to say hello to you before you take off. Uh, if you came in maybe uh, after the announcements, let me just say again what, what Adam said. Easter is in three weeks. Every Easter we have a big party. We have a big celebration. And uh, we, we would love for you to be there. Obviously invite friends, family. It's going to be a great Sunday. So that's coming up in three weeks. Make sure that you don't book anything afterwards. If you have plans with your family, tell them you're not coming. Um, and uh, Or actually, tell them to come with you, but we always have a big egg hunt, bouncy house, all that stuff afterwards, food trucks. It's going to be a blast. So make sure to be there with family, friends, and uh, strangers that you meet. It'll be a a fun time. So uh, we are in a series that we are finishing up called Stronger, where we've been looking at a letter uh, called 1 Timothy in the Bible. And it's a letter that Paul, who's one of the early church leaders, pastors, he writes to another pastor named Timothy in uh, in a city called Ephesus. And it's a church that's about five years old, kind of been around for a little bit and really wanting to help them experience faith and life stronger than it than it is now, which is something that we all want. So I'm going to pray for us and then we will jump into the sermon. So God, I pray even now that you would speak to our hearts. I know that we all come in here in different ways with different things going on and different places in our lives and even different uh, points in our journey. And some of us have uh, had great weeks and some of us really hard weeks. But I I pray that you would speak to each heart here today, that uh, you would allow me to communicate your word and we would be able to hear your voice. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And so we want to experience life stronger. And there's a lot of different areas that we've talked about and a lot of different things that we could talk about when we talk about life being stronger than it is now. But most of our life, most of our life, if you think about life being stronger, most of it doesn't take place in this room. Most of our life, and when you think about faith being stronger and you think about all sorts of things being better than they are now, most of our life doesn't take place here. Most of our life doesn't take place with kind of Faith stuff in the sense of prayer or Bible reading or uh, Sunday service, that's not most of life. Most of life, most of what we do in our life is actually spent working. And maybe you can't even see all the categories here, but this first half is most of your life, how we spend a lifetime. You're going to spend 28.3 years sleeping and 10 and a half years working. So most of your life, if this is depressing, I'm sorry, is sleeping and working. That's it. You only have a small little bit of time left to do other things, and a giant chunk of that is apparently watching TV. Um, But that's most of our life, right? And even if you're an insomniac and can't sleep very well, and so the TV category grows a little bit or something, most of our life, the biggest chunk outside of sleeping, most of your life is going to be working. And I know it's Sunday, I know it's the weekend, you don't want to think about work. Maybe that's the only reason you're even here, is you're like, I don't want to think about my job. But most of our life is spent working. That's the biggest activity that we actually engage in. And so if we want to think about life being stronger than it is now, we've got to think about our job. We've got to think about work, because we spend more time, and we spend more emotion, and we spend more mental energy there than pretty much anything in our lives. And if God, if God's not a part of our work, if God's not a part of our work, he's really not a part of our lives. And when your work life is off, like when your work life is out of whack, when it's not quite going well, then your life is out of whack. When your work is off, your life is off. And we don't want our work to be a source of frustration. 
right? You don't want your, you don't, I mean, maybe it is right now, but you don't want to show up to work Monday morning or whenever you work, maybe you work nights or whatever. You don't want to show up to work and just, I hate this. We don't want that. That might be the reality right now, but none of us want that. We don't want to hate our job. We don't want to hate our coworkers. We want our work to be this source of purpose for us. We want our work to be a place where we've got uh, good relationships and where we feel uh, meaning and, and, and where it doesn't drain us and we're just living for the weekend. We want our work to be something, if it is going to take up a big chunk of our lives, we want it to be something that we say, man, this is good. I enjoy this. I, I find meaning and purpose here, but it's, it's hard. Because oftentimes that's not the reality. Oftentimes, work is not what we thought it was going to be. And I don't know, you know where you are. Maybe you kind of finished college up and you're starting to look for a job. Or maybe you're a couple years out of college. Or maybe you're 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Wherever you are, whether you're kind of just starting your work or maybe you've restarted your work and you're in a new career or something. Oftentimes, it's, it's not what we thought it would be. It's not what we hoped it would be. When you're a little kid and people say, man, what do you want to do when you grow up? And, and you're like, oh, I want to. I mean, a lot of times now you're like, I don't, I don't know. I wanted to be a ninja. And now I'm this? Like, I don't. <laughs> this, is, this is, I wanted to be a ninja. I, told, I actually sold my brother for a dime ninja lessons when I was like eight. So anyway, I don't, I don't know what that has to do with anything. I broke a lamp and then I got a spanking. So um, the ninja training was over at that point. Uh, but a lot of times our work is not what we thought it was going to be, right? It's not. We look at it and go, man, this is frustrating. This, isn't, this is not what I wanted it to be. Maybe you hate your job. Yeah, like that, right? Maybe that's, maybe she hates it, right? Maybe, uh, or he hates, maybe you hate your job, right? Maybe, maybe your job, maybe you don't hate it, but it just drains you. You know, you just kind of show up and it just drains you. It just kind of sucks the life out of you and you're just like, man, it's just so, maybe it's because it's so monotonous or something, or, or maybe it doesn't drain you, you don't hate it, but you're just kind of apathetic about it. It's just like, well, is what it is. I'm working for a paycheck, working for this, and it just kind of is what it is. When our work is off, our life is off. When our work is off, our life is off. I, I don't know if I know anybody that says, I hate my job and it sucks my life out of me, but my marriage is great and my friendships are great because usually it kind of affects everything around it, right? And when your work is off, it affects everything else. So how can we experience life stronger than it is now? If we want to do that, we've got to understand how faith connects to our work. And we've got to, here, here's the question that we're really just looking at today is, how do we deal with the frustrations of work? Because work is hard and it's frustrating. How do we deal if, if your job is not everything that you hope it could be? If you've got a bad boss or, or you've got bad coworkers or and you're facing all sorts of different things in work, when work is off, how do we deal with the frustrations in our work? So we're going to read this, uh, just really it's just a couple verses. We're, we're going to read this and, and, um, and then we will talk about how we can face frustrations in our work. Here's what Paul says. All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better, since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Now, when we first look at this, it, maybe it's kind of hard to see the, the work thing. It's about slavery. It's about slaves. And before we even begin to get into work, and we just read two verses about slavery, we kind of have to address that. I mean, if it, if it said, hey, 
you know, all those unicorns out there, I couldn't really just skip by that. We'd kind of go, wait a minute, what is, what is that talking about, right? I mean, if it talks about slavery, that might be an issue for you. Even maybe you're not a Christian or unsure kind of what you believe about God, or maybe you are a Christian. You have friends that say, hey, how could you believe the Bible? It, it endorses slavery or it talks about slavery. So how can you believe the Bible or take it seriously? If it kind of gets slavery wrong, can it, wouldn't it get everything wrong? I mean, kind of thing we got to address, right? It talks about slavery. So is the Bible pro-slavery? Does the Bible endorse slavery? Let me, this isn't the whole sermon, but let me give a little bit of side on this just so we can kind of be, not even just kind of shut this down before we can even listen to what God would want to speak to us. And let me say this, Paul speaks to slavery, but just because he speaks to something doesn't mean he endorses it. If Paul says, I want to talk to all of you whose spouses are cheating on you, that doesn't mean that Paul is saying, I endorse spouse cheating. Or if Paul were to say, I want to talk to all of you that have horrible migraines or are suffering from uh, disease or sickness in some way, that it doesn't mean that he's endorsing that. It means he's viewing it as a form of suffering that is right to speak into. And before we can actually even talk about slavery and what Paul is talking about, we actually have to say, what, what, what was slavery even? Because when you think of slavery, what do you think of? Probably we think of pre-Civil War slavery in America, right? We think of the slave trade, and if you've seen different movies or read different books, I mean, that is where our mind goes. But a couple thousand years ago in Rome and in kind of the Roman Empire, slavery was much different than what we think of. So let me just read. This is from a scholar that talks about this. It says, in the first century, so this is what Paul is speaking into. In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race. It wasn't based on race. By speech or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly. They were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. So in the beginning of the first century, we think of slavery, we think of American, awful, horrible slavery. That's what our minds go to. It was a much different thing in the first century. Now, I'm not saying that means, isn't this awesome? Don't you want to sign up for this? I'm not saying it's great. I'm just saying it was a different institution than what we think of. It was a much different thing. But we can still ask, well, why doesn't, why doesn't Paul just write and say, hey, I'm going to talk to you that are slaves and say, run, you know, be done with it. Let's end the institution. Like, why doesn't Paul say that? And I mean, there's a lot of different things we could talk about with that. But I mean, quite simply, it's this. It, the Bible's not a political document. Paul's writing to help people know the good news of who Jesus is and what God came to do to save people. He's not writing a, a social kind of commentary or social contract on things. And, and, and more so even than that is, or maybe not more so, but at least likewise, the church was oppressed. The church is getting started in the first century, just getting birthed. And if Paul were to come out and say, hey, end slavery, end the institution, I mean, immediately Rome, the empire, would have just wiped them out, would have destroyed them. They would say, you're, you're trying to stir up an uprising. You're trying to create revolt. And immediately Christianity would have been over. And Paul's goals, Paul's aims are, are different than that. But what Paul does do, but what Paul does do all throughout the New Testament 
is speak and plant seeds of things of what God wants and what God's view is that eventually did lead to the destruction of slavery. See, Paul doesn't just come out and say the institution of slavery should end and then maybe, you know, Rome would crush Christianity. But what he does is say what God wants. He says what God's values are. He says what, 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 how we're supposed to treat each other. And that ultimately changed slavery. So let me give you a handful of things that Paul taught. First, and we looked at this at the very beginning of this letter, slave trading is condemned. So the, so the kidnapping of people and selling them into slavery, it's outlawed in 1 Timothy, the very beginning. So, I mean, even just think about that. If, if, if people had taken this seriously in America, there would have been no such thing as slavery. A second thing is that slaves are told to be free if, they're, if they can. When he writes to the church in Corinth, he writes and says, hey, if you're, a, if you're a slave, he says, I want you to be able to get your freedom if you can't. Because I understand and recognize this isn't a great condition. And if you can be free, do it. And he actually also tells people not to sell themselves into slavery because some people wanted to sell themselves into slavery for economic reasons. And he actually says not to do that. Third, Paul says this, all abuse towards slaves is condemned. In Ephesians 6, he talks about the relationship again with slaves and masters. And he tells, do not, in any, do not have any abuse, violence towards slaves at all. Because he says, you have the same master. Which is a very equalizing thing to say. Also, there's a letter that Paul writes to Philemon, who had a runaway slave. And Paul writes to him and says, the gospel makes slaves and masters brothers. He says, because of what Jesus did on the cross, slaves, masters are actually brought into family together and are brothers. And the hierarchical relationship should no longer be what defines. And then finally, in Galatians 3, absolute equal worth and dignity is given to slaves. Paul says there's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ which is to say there's absolute worth, there's no distinction, there's no, for those of you that know your history, no three-fifths humanity, there's, there's nothing of that. We are all one in Christ with absolute dignity, absolute worth, absolute value. Now, this, this is just a sampling of things to say the Bible's not pro-slavery in any way. Paul speaks into a situation that already existed. He speaks into suffering and oppression that existed. Which is why, this is, this is really interesting, maybe some of you uh, didn't, didn't know this, um, NPR ran an article about this, but there's actually a Bible in America called the Slave Bible that was given to African Americans, that was given to the slaves, and 90% of the Old Testament was cut out of it, 50% of the New Testament was cut out of it, all the verses that we just looked at would be gone from it. Because people knew how unpro-slavery the Bible actually was. How if you took these things seriously, saying slave trading's condemned, we're one, the gospel makes us family, there's not to be any abuse, all that stuff cut out of the Bible that was given to slaves. Hey, you should be, you should be a Christian. Read this. And only includes things like forgive, respect authority, but has nothing to do with equality, has nothing to do with the exodus and Moses freeing slaves and nothing to do with any of that. Cut out, because the Bible is actually a document that very seriously creates a family and equality and worth. So th this, is what we're, this is what we are looking at, but we're not slaves, right? None of you are slaves in this room. You might feel like it in your jobs, but, but none of us are slaves. And yet, all that said, there's still principles there's still principles that Paul speaks to when we find ourselves in difficult working conditions that can help us 
in our jobs. And to start with, when we say, how can we face the frustrations we have in our job? What are some of the temptations that we face with work? What's some of the stuff that you show up to work that it's, it's hard for you to even think about? How can I face the frustrations that I have with work? How can I thrive in my work? Man, I've got all this different stuff coming at me all the time. What's some of the temptations that we face in work? And there's at least a couple things that, that we can see that, that Paul speaks to them. He calls slavery a yoke. And that's not an egg yoke. That's yoke as in the sense of a thing that would uh, bind two oxen together, two animals together, saying it's oppressive, saying it's something difficult, that the conditions are not right, that it's something that's holding you down, that it's something that is mistreatment. And he speaks to people who are under the yoke, saying they should regard their masters as worthy of all respect. But, but here's what that means. Here's what that means. I love this, actually, that he begins his instructions to those in this experience, calling it a yoke. You know, you know why I love this? Because here's what this means. God sees it. Like for Paul to call it out and say, this is a yoke. This is oppressive. This is hard for you. That means that whatever work situation that you are going through, and you know, it's obviously not slavery, but whatever work situation you're going through that you find difficult, that you find hard, that maybe you are mistreated in, that, that you go, man, I don't, I don't even get it. Like, why, why don't they like me? Or why do they mistreat me? Or why, do I, why am I forced to do these things? Or why, like, things like that, Paul says God sees it. Paul says God sees it. He, he sees it and he calls it what it is. He calls it a yoke. But the temptation in that situation, Paul writes and says to, to treat the masters with respect, the temptation in that situation, like if you're in a work situation where you feel mistreated, if you're in a work situation where you feel you're, you actually have to do more than was originally asked of you or, or, or your boss yells at you or, or you're not sure, you can never, you kind of always have to work, walk on eggshells and not sure what you're doing is right or wrong. Or if you're in a work situation, if you're in a work situation that's hard, what's, what's, what's your tendency? It's to respond in kind, right? That if you are mistreated, it's to mistreat. That if people talk bad about you, it's to talk bad about them. That if people yell at you, it's to yell at them. That if people harm you, it's to harm them. That is our temptation in the middle of work when other people sin against us in whatever ways is to respond in kind. That if we've been mistreated, to mistreat. Or maybe it's bitterness. It's to mistreat them internally, which is part of what bitterness is. You might not be able to do something outward about it, but you can at least think in your mind. You can at least feel in your heart, oh, this person, and, and have, have a battle with them and a fight with them in your own heart and in your soul. So one of the temptations that we face in work is to mistreat those that mistreat us, to respond in kind to those that respond to us poorly. So one of the temptations we face comes from the sin of others against us, but one of the temptations that we face is our own, our own sin. Paul also says this. He says that those who have believing masters, so if they have a Christian master, not to be disrespectful to them because they're brothers. But he says to serve them even better. But here's what he's pointing out. You know what the tendency is? You know what the tendency is, he says? is a laziness and a mediocrity. It's to actually say, oh, I've got a Christian boss. Sweet. So I can just kind of chill out. 
I can just kind of do nothing. Now, I don't know if you have a Christian boss or not, but I, but I do know um, I, I've been in a situation before in a church I worked at uh, previously where employees would come on and, and had that posture to say, sweet, I work for a church. That means I get to do nothing. It means I get to get paid to read the Bible and pray and listen to sermons online or something. And, and ha- people actually got fired, had to be corrected and say, man, you're, if you worked for another job, no one would ever allow this. But because you work for a Christian, it's easy to go, oh, well, you know, you should be looking out for me. Now, I don't know if this is your position. I don't know if you have a Christian boss. I don't know if you find yourself in this place. But what Paul speaks to is that our tendency in work can be, man, where can I find the loophole? Where can I do as little as possible? Where can I get by? Where can I not have to do what is actually required of me? Where can I do as little as I can? can actually be the tendency that we have, whether it's because we have a a Christian boss or not. Paul is saying that's in our heart. It might come out because there's a Christian boss. So you say, sweet, I, you know, this person is going to have to, you know, give me the benefit of the doubt. Paul says one of the things in our heart when it comes to work can just be to say, I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find ways to cut corners. I'm trying to be able to find things that make it easier for me. Now, the temptations we face in work, I I don't know what you face, right? We're not covering comprehensively everything that there is. But Paul gives us at least these couple things that work right now might be really hard for you. And it might be hard for you because of other people and their mistreatment to you. Or it might be hard because of your own internal feelings of, how can I kind of cut some corners? How can I make this easy? And you might daily be faced with these temptations. You might daily be faced with the temptations to mistreat those that mistreat you or to cut the corners that you, that you find. And what Paul says is God wants to enter into that situation. God wants to enter into the difficulty of our work. God wants your work to be a place where you experience him in it. So what helps us then in the frustrations of work? These might be some of the things that make it extra hard, that bring temptation, but what can actually help us? And oftentimes, we don't, we don't really know, right? We, we, we don't actually know. We think, man, the only thing that maybe can help us in our work is if I change the work, if I leave it. And maybe, I'm not, I'm not trying to say you shouldn't leave your job. Maybe you're, try, maybe you're wrestling with that decision right now. I was talking to someone this week who is wrestling with, should I leave my job? Should I stay with my job? Maybe that is the right call for you. But it's most likely the next job you face is going to have difficulty also. I don't know of someone that had a job and it was hard, left that job and went to a new job and said, this, there's no difficulty at all. This is great. Even if you're your own boss, there's difficulty. Even if you're unemployed, there's difficulty. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It's going to follow you. No matter where you go, there's still going to be issues that we have to learn how to deal with in the work versus just changing the work situation. So if it's not just changing the work, what What needs to change inside of us or what needs to change of how we view work that can help us, that can help us deal with the frustrations? And and here's the thing. Whenever you have a bigger picture on something, you can make it through a lot of stuff, right? When you have a bigger picture of something, you're able to make it through things that are really difficult. This is true of all life, but it's, it's true in work. It maybe your work is really hard, and I have talked to some of you that have said this, your work is really hard, but there's kind of a promotion out there. 
there's a raise out there. And it's like, okay, if I can keep that picture in mind, I'm able to slog through these next few months. And you say, man, work is very difficult, but if I keep that in view, if I keep in mind I'm going to get promoted soon, I'm going to be on a new team soon, I'm going to be able to get this bonus soon, then you're actually able to kind of make it through, right? When you have a bigger picture, you're able to make it through a lot of stuff that is difficult. I don't, I don't know if some of you maybe watched this. There was a, a movie on Netflix called uh, The Ballad of Buster Scroggs, and uh, there was one of these, it's a bunch of short stories, and there's one scene that kind of stood out to me as it relates to work of this gold miner, and you can see he's like chest deep digging holes for gold, right? And he's looking for gold, and, and this is just kind of one hole. It zooms out eventually and shows he's digging all these holes all throughout this place, and he's out there isolated. He's by himself. He's doing hard work. You think your job is hard because your fingers hurt from typing, right? But this is manual. This is real work. This is, I mean, I'm guilty of the same thing, so I'm not making fun of you. Uh, but he, he's, he's digging, right? He's working hard. It's really menial, boring stuff. I mean, you're just kind of shoveling. That's not super exciting. You're not necessarily filled with purpose. But he knows, and I can get through it. I can dig a bunch of these holes. I can do it alone. I can do something super menial. I can do something physically exhausting. I can do something time-consuming because there's a bigger purpose. And for him, it's gold. But that shows that, man, we, we can get through stuff, right? Whether it's a promotion for you or it, maybe it's even a vacation that you know, man, okay, I'm working towards that. That if we have a bigger picture on stuff, if we have a bigger picture on stuff, we're able, we're able to make it through difficulty, we're able to make it through menial tasks. We're able to make it through hard people. We're able to make it through all sorts of stuff if we have a bigger picture. And this is what Paul says that we need. See, Paul says you need a bigger picture in your work. If you're going to be helped with the frustrations that you have in work, the mistreatment that you face, the own temptations that you have, if you're going to be able to make it through that, you need a bigger picture. And he says here's the bigger picture, and this is the key really of the whole sermon. So if you've been tuning out, just tune in for a couple seconds. And then if, uh, if, if you want to tune out forward, then you're fine right after this. This is the big idea. Here, here's the big picture that we need to be able to make it through work. It is not to have our focus on us and how we feel and our job quality and, and, and what, what it's like and what's, what is it doing to us. And it's not to have our focus on them, how they're treating us, or how what they're doing is unfair. He says the big picture that you need is to look at God. To move our focus from ourselves, which is often what happens in our work, right? I mean, I mean that's just natural. We think about ourselves. To not have our focus on us. To not have our focus on them and the way they're treating us. But to have our focus on God. If we have that big picture... If we have that big picture, instead of a pile of gold in the ground or instead of a promotion or instead of a vacation, if we have that big picture, he says, then we'll be able to make it through whatever frustrations we have in work. Look what he says. He says that you're under the yoke, right? It's difficult. But he says, treat them as worthy of all respect so that here's a purpose that's given to your work. Here's a big picture that's given to your work so that God's name, and his teaching will not be blasphemed. He says, if you have that big picture, if you know that you're showing up to work and you're working for something, that there's a bigger picture that is in view, there's a bigger purpose that's in view, 
that you are actually working and you are working to let God's name, his reputation, you're working to let that be known. You're working to let his teaching be known and seen that you're showing up to work. And even if it feels very menial, even if it feels very humdrum and it just kind of feels like you're going through the motions and people at work mistreat you and, and you don't have friends or I mean, whatever it is, if you've got that picture, you can make it through whatever it is. If you've got that picture, you're able to do the most significant of tasks or the most menial of tasks because the focus is now off of you. There's a bigger purpose. There's a bigger picture that what you do at work is extremely significant. And this is just a snapshot. Look, I did a series on work about a year ago. If you want to go back and look at kind of God's whole purpose for work, that, that man, there's so much that can really help you. But this is a, a snapshot of what Paul gives us to help us, is to say, you show up at work, you show up at work, this can change everything. That if you have a so that, if you've got a purpose, it's off of yourself, it's off of them, and you look at God and say, I'm actually here to help people see who God is. I'm actually here to help people know and recognize Jesus. It gives you a deep significance. You know, you know what one of the most frustrating things in your work is? You know what one of the most frustrating things in, in any of our work is? One of the things that makes it the hardest is, and it's what we instinctively do, but it's when our focus is on us. There's an author for Inc. that says this. Says, I spent 15 years studying why people hate their jobs. This is the top reason. I've worked with thousands of people on their career challenges, and one reason for job dissatisfaction stands out as the most common. It's called praise addiction. Here's what he says. We've been trained to seek out incentives like good grades, stickers, trophies, and yes, praise. We like to be liked. More important, we like to be respected. So here's what makes your work one of the most, here's what makes your work frustrating. Here's one of the most difficult things. Here's what research says. Really, here's what Paul is even pointing at, is when we show up and our focus is on us, there's nothing wrong with you wanting a boss to say good job. There's nothing wrong for those of you that are stay-at-home moms and most of your job is working with your kids. There's nothing wrong with wanting your kids to be thankful and say, thanks for this snack or, or something, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But here's what it will do ultimately to your, to your job. It'll make it very frustrating if you show up and your focus is on you and you want to be respected. When that is what's driving your work, when that's the big picture, when that's the purpose, is I show up to work and I want, I'm, I've got praise addiction. I want to be respected. I want to be respected by my peers. I want to be respected by my boss. I want to be respected by people that I talk to about my work. When our focus is on us, ultimately, our work will be very frustrating. Paul's pointing at this when he actually says, look, get the focus off of you. Get the focus off of you. You need a bigger picture than just your job quality or the respect that people give to you. You need a bigger picture. You need to see that you are actually not supposed to be drawing attention to yourself. And thus, if other people are not giving you the attention, they're actually mistreating you, you're actually trying to draw attention to God, is what he says. So what helps us with our work is two things. The first is a deeper purpose. We need a bigger picture 
Part of that picture is that we, we see, man, I've got a purpose to actually show people who God is. But the second thing is what helps us is to be able to show his name, which is what Paul says, to let his name and his teaching be known. To be able to show his name, we've got to know his name. To be able to show his name, we've got to know it. And I don't mean just you know the name Jesus or know the name God, but you have to know who he is. Because a name is everything that someone is. That's what Paul's talking about when he says to show God's name. A name is everything that somebody is. It represents their identity. It represents every part of who they are. It represents everything about them. And he says he wants us, as we show up to work, to have a bigger purpose. We're trying to help people see it. But he's also inherently in that, pointing us back to, remember who his name is? Remember what he's like? Remember his character? See, a name is everything that somebody is. I, I don't know if you saw the movie Creed or Creed Two. Great movies. And Creed Two. Yeah, we got a shout out for Creed. Good. So Creed Creed Two is is uh, you know it's a boxing movie. If you haven't seen it, it's a boxing movie, and and Creed is his last name. Okay, and he's he's trying to in the second movie. He's trying, for those of you Rocky fans, he's trying to, he, the, the guy that Drago killed his dad in the boxing ring. You're getting a Rocky history lesson here, right? So Drago, there's seven of them, I think, or eight, actually. Um, yes. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to get some, I, sometimes I get feedback on my sermon, so I, if I get anything wrong on Rocky, I know that there's going to be, actually, you know, that's all right. I've got, I've got the five DVD set, and then, anyway, so... Um, but he's trying to defend one of the, the dad, Drago, Russian bad guy, killed his dad, right? And so Creed gets in the ring and needs to defend against the son his, his dad's name in a lot of ways and wants to fight for his name, the name Creed. And there's this scene where Creed, you know, it's, this is not giving it away. You know, any, every sports movie is the same. So Creed gets knocked down. He's on the ground. And the ref comes up to him. And the ref is, you know, because he's like all dazed and, and you've got to kind of call him back. And it's, it's got kind of two messages in it. There's the ref of what he's supposed to do, but there's the, the meaning that we're supposed to be getting from it. And the ref looks at him as he's knocked down and he's phased and he's fighting for his name. And, and the ref says, what's your name? Because he wants to make sure he knows who he is and, you know, that he's not disqualified now from the fight. What's your name? And he says, Creed, you know, what's your name? Creed, you know, and then. And, and that only works if your last name's cool. If it's like Smith or something, then that doesn't really work. It's like Smith, and then you're like, okay, that's stupid, right? But and sorry if your last name is Smith. Or if it's Davis, my last name's David. It's not as cool, right? But the whole point is he, his name is in this movie representative of victory and representative of his family and his dad and his identity and everything that he is. That's a name, right? That's what a name is. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this. If you are going to be able to make it through the frustrations of your work, you need to have a bigger purpose, but you also need to be able to know his name. And his name represents everything that he is. And when he is saying this, when he's saying, hey, treat your masters as worthy of respect and actually work hard to serve them, don't try to cut corners, why is that connected to his name? Why would he say this is actually contrary to his name? Show respect to your masters because if you don't, that's contrary to his name. Serve all the more because if you don't, that's contrary to his name. Why is that contrary to his name? See, what Paul wants to remind us is of who God has been to us, who he is, his identity, his name. 
See, it's, 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 out of, it's out of character. It's out of focus of God's name if we treat people with disrespect. Because you know, you know what God does to us? I mean, God's name, his identity is one that is grace. That people that mistreat God, God treats with grace. That people that disrespect God, God treats with grace and kindness. The people that, the people that oppressed Jesus, the people that mistreated Jesus and mocked Jesus and slandered Jesus and abused Jesus, it says that, that Jesus treated them with grace and kindness. And on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, Paul is trying to remind us of who God has been to us and his name. It's because don't you know that, man, we are sinners, right? We do things all the time that are disrespectful of God or ignoring God or mistreating God or not caring about God or not treating God with the value and the worth that he deserves. And yet, what does God do to you? He treats you with kindness. He treats you with grace. He treats you with compassion. You know, you know what the Bible even says is that God, just the same way that Paul tells us, to do this to people that mistreat us. You know, you, know what Paul, you know what God says? Look, you are not worthy, but I count you as if you are worthy. God says, you are not my child, but I adopt you and count you as if you are my child. You are not righteous, but I count you as if you are righteous because of Jesus. You are not perfect, but I count you as if you are perfect because of Jesus. That you are sinful and wander from me and, and do all sorts of things, but I count you as if you're holy because of Jesus. See, that is who God's name is. God's name is that he is one that gives grace to people that don't deserve it, that counts people as worthy that haven't earned it. So it's out of, it's out of character with his name if we act differently than that, and Paul is trying to remind us, here's who his name is, that he is a God of grace and that he's a God that serves. See, it's out of, it's out of character with his name if we don't strive to serve because he is the one that serves. It's not consistent with his name if we don't serve because he's a God that serves. Do you know that the Bible actually, that Jesus even says of himself that he is a slave, that he is a servant, that Jesus washed people's feet, that Jesus said, man, I, I am here to serve. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. See, that's what his name is, is a God that serves. Do you know that in your life, not just 2,000 years ago that Jesus served people, but do you know that in your life, if you're a Christian, the Bible says that he is always, always working for your good. That's what a servant does, right? A servant says, how can I find good and do it for you? That's what a good servant does. Is someone that says, I am proactively looking for and trying to find ways to make your life better. God says that that's what he does for us. That God is always looking to arrange the circumstances of our life. He's always looking to change things and move things to do the most good to us. He says, this is my character. This is my name is I'm a servant and I'm gracious. Paul says, if we want to be able to make it through the frustrations of work, Paul says, if we want to be able to make it through the difficulty of work and the temptations, what we face and what's hard for us, we have to have a bigger picture. 
bigger than just a promotion, bigger than just a vacation, bigger than just you know, whatever it might be, gold in the ground. We need a bigger picture of, I have a purpose. And I know his name. This is what ultimately helps us. I know, I know it's hard. Paul says, stop looking at them. Stop looking at yourselves. Look at him. See the bigger picture. That begins to change things. And, and here's what it does. This is our last question here. Is how, how does this actually change our work then? What would actually happen if, if we received that kind of help in the middle of our work? What would actually happen in your job tomorrow or later today? I mean, whatever your work schedule is. What, what would happen? How does it change us? And he gives us two things that this begins to change. And obviously, we've already looked at him. It's just a short couple verses. But he, he gives us two main things that help us, points us in the right direction for how our work can be stronger, for how we can overcome the, the frustrations that we face in work. And the first thing he says is this, is to count people as worthy of all respect. To count them worthy of all respect. To regard them as worthy of all respect. Now, here's what this means. You are going to be sinned against at your job. You are going to be sinned against. People are going to mistreat you. And I don't need to tell you that. You are already feeling it. You've already felt it. You will be sinned against. I want you to think of difficult person in your job, difficult coworker, difficult boss, difficult client, whoever it might be. Think of difficult people in your work. What would happen? if you treated them as if they were worthy of respect. See, Paul doesn't actually say that they are respectful. He says to regard them as if they're worthy of all respect. What would happen if you did that? What would happen if you showed up to your job and the people that are the most difficult, whether it's a customer, a client, a boss, a coworker, what if you said, I am going to treat them as if they are the most respectful person there is. I'm going to treat them as if I respect them. I will regard them as worthy. What if you showed up and said, they are worth respect? Wouldn't that change things? What if you showed up and treated people not as they deserved, not as what they earned from the way that they treated you, but you treated them with grace. And instead of gossiping about them when they mistreat you, instead of talking bad about them or complaining about them, or instead of treating them the way that they treat you, instead of interacting with them the way they interact with you, it, listen, if you're a teacher with the bratty little kids that you teach, if you're a mom with the disrespectful little kids that you have, what if you treat them worthy of all respect? What if you treat them and say, they, I'm going to treat them as worthy of all respect. Not going to give to them what they give to me. What would change? What would change in your job if you treated people not as they deserved, not as they had earned, but with grace? See, he's saying that actually tells people something about God because that's what God does to us. That's what God has done to you and me. So first, it starts with respect. Do you see how much power that gives you? And I'm not trying to just give you a big power boost here, but doesn't that give you so much power to say, I don't actually have to be controlled by how they treat me. I can just treat them with grace. I can count people as respectful, even if they're not. So that's the first thing he says, is here's what would change in your work. You're able to regard people as worthy of respect. 
And secondly, that we're able to serve people. He says, remember, if you've got a Christian master, that you should serve them even better because they're people that God dearly loves and they're actually your brothers. But, man, if it's serve them even better, that means in all of our work that what is implied is we are to serve. And if you've got a Christian boss, serve them even better. Because you know, man, God loves that person and we're actually in the family. Instead of letting that be an excuse not to serve them well, which is kind of what we do with our family, like, uh, you know, who cares, right? Aren't we the worst with the people that we're closest to? I mean, your spouse has seen you worse than anyone else has. Your parents have seen you worse than anyone else has. And I don't just mean like with messy hair in your pajamas. I mean, like your, your worst sin comes out with the people you're closest to. Sorry to make fun of your pajamas. I know that's inappropriate. Um, and to serve them even better. To serve them. So first is respect, and second is to serve. Like, it changes our work when we show up to actually serve. Often we actually think of our job as for us. We're there to get a paycheck. We're there for our purpose or our meaning. We actually look for ways for other people to serve us in our work. But what if we show up to serve? And you might know you're supposed to do that, right? If you're a Christian, you might know, I'm supposed to love people and serve people. There's Bible verses on that. You know, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. I'm supposed to not just look about my own interests, but look at other people's interests. I'm supposed to serve. We might know that, but a lot of times we actually cut that off when it comes to work. What would happen if you show up to work and said, I'm here to love my neighbor as myself. I'm here to serve. What would that change if we actually showed up viewing, I'm here to serve. I'm here to wash feet. I'm here to look after people's interests. I'm here to be proactively finding ways to bless people. What would happen? Don't don't you love when you go to a job and that's how they treat you? There's a big difference. You go to a restaurant and the person's like, here's your food. And the person that's, man, you can just tell they really are a server versus they're just kind of going through the thing. Or you call customer service. I mean, it's a rare experience, I know, but if you call customer service and they're actually like, I'm here to serve you, and they're not just reading from the form, and you're like, man, this person really helped me. This is amazing. What if we actually showed up to our jobs and said, I'm here to serve? And if I've got a Christian boss, I'm even to serve him better. But I'm here to serve. What would happen if we took that idea that our job is about loving and serving people because we have a God that has loved and served us, and that's what his name is? It leads to excellence in our work. It leads to being proactive in our work versus just waiting to be told what to do. It leads to a totally different mentality when we say, how can I reflect God? See, work is most of our life. It's, we got sleeping and we got working. So maybe the next sermon will be how to grow stronger in your sleeping, you know, how to have a faith perspective on sleep. That'd be helpful, actually, but... Work is most of our life. It can be really hard. There's a lot of frustrations in it. What happens? What happens if we're able to actually meet those frustrations and temptations not crushing us? Not focused on ourselves, not focused on them, but focused on Him. You know what happens? Our goals change. We have a bigger purpose. Our heart changes. We're able to treat people with grace, even if they mistreat us. Our actions change. We're able to serve people, even if, even if they're not serving us. Everything begins to change. We can change, even if our work doesn't. 
we can grow stronger even if our work is the same. When we come to take communion, what we remember is that Jesus came to this earth and his body was broken and his blood was shed for us, for people that mistreated him to the point of death, for people that rejected him to the point of death. But he wanted to serve and he wanted to count us. He wanted to regard us as worthy, to give us the gift of salvation, to transform us, to bring us to life with himself. So as you come take communion, remember his name, who he is, and ask him to change you, not just here, but for tomorrow and your work, the rest of your life. We pray with me and we will sing songs that help us to worship this God and drive these truths even deeper into our hearts. Father, I thank you for the fact that you speak into our work. You speak into the parts of our life that are really hard for us. That you see, you see our jobs, whether we work for ourselves or we're stay-at-home moms or we're students or we're teachers or, or we're just starting our career, or we're starting over in our career, or we're nearing the end of our career. Wherever we are, God, you see the difficulty. And you don't tell us to just suck it up or you don't tell us to not think about it. You speak into it. You remind us that we have a purpose and you remind us who you are and that it's deeply significant what we get to be a part of with you. So God, let these truths sink deeper into our hearts as we worship now. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.